Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis, filling in for Chris Taracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdaugh, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who was accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes, including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our presentation of the direct examination of Alex Murdaugh's former paralegal, Annette Griswold. In this installment, we recap the testimony of Forge Consulting Principal Michael Gunn, and we review the testimonies of digital evidence examiner Brian Hudak and FBI electronics engineer Dwight Falkowski. That's all coming up right after the break. 20233 Mr. Gunn is in his 40s and sports a graying goatee and dark hair parted neatly on his right side. He wears a navy blue suit, a black patterned tie, and a sky blue dress shirt. Gunn is a principal of Forge Consulting, a company that worked with the defendant's former firm PMPED to structure legal settlements. Alex Murdaugh named a private bank account after Forge Consulting. This account is generally referenced in court as the fake Forge, which Murdaugh created in order to steal client fees and to suggest to anyone examining the deposits that they were sent to the firm trust accounts at the real Forge Consulting firm where Gunn works. Mr. Gunn testifies that he had a professional connection to Murdaugh, which eventually turned into friendship. He and the defendant discussed using Forge accounts to facilitate legal contingent fee deferral arrangements, but had no direct conversations about using those accounts for specific case fees. In 2021, Gunn received inquiries about Forge Consulting's banking practices. This led to the discovery that Murdaugh had been using a fraudulent account with the Forge name. Gunn affirms that he had no prior knowledge of the fake Forge account. After Johnny James concludes his direct examination of Mr. Gunn, defense attorney Jim Griffin rises to begin his cross-examination of the witness. Good afternoon. You had some formal positions with the uh, South Carolina Association of Justice? Yes, sir. What were those? Uh, did some government affairs lobbying work for them. Okay, yes, on a contract basis? Uh, and as an employee and as a contract. Okay. And at one point in time, Alec Murdoch was the president of the South Carolina SCAJ? Yes, sir, he was. And and were you employed at the time or contract lobby? Uh, yes, sir, I was employed at the time, yes, sir. And, and part of his duties, well, I guess he was on the board for a period of time as well, right? That's correct, yes, sir. And the SCAJ board and the president would meet in Columbia uh, quarterly, monthly? How often? They would meet in Columbia probably... 
twice a year. They normally met at the convention spots or the CLE spots, and then one was always by telephone. But usually the president was, even the telephone call, the president would come to Columbia. And, and when he would come to Columbia, um, you, you remember Maggie would come with him and spend the night? On the business trips, yeah, uh, sometimes, yeah. I don't know. I don't know specifically for that re for the skate stuff, but I do. Maggie's been in nine Columbia, but but you saw them traveling together in Columbia. I mean, you said you would see him in Columbia on business reasons. Was the business reasons his his uh, membership on the board and and then the, I would say, I would, generally speaking, most of the time when I would see him, it would be because of that, yes, sir. And then he and Maggie came to. You. You and your wife wedding in New York, right? They did. And, uh, and my understanding is the big day came on the day of a big blizzard. That three feet of snow, yes, sir. And so you had to delay the wedding a day, right? We did. And and you got to spend a lot more time with Maggie and Alec. And, and, and all, the, all, the, all the other guests, yes, sir. Right. And uh, and so uh, and did, at that point in time, your wife became friends with Maggie and and you all became pretty good social friends? I think so. I mean, we still didn't really hang out much after the wedding other than professional settings, and that could have been just because of the distance between the towns. But, yeah, we, we keep in touch, no doubt. And, and then every year, I think you mentioned, um, there's an annual convention at Hilton Head of the, we used to call it trial lawyers. But I, I still do, too. Yeah, of the trial lawyers, right? Yes, sir. And, and that's usually at a hotel. It used to be at... The Westin at Port Royal, I think. Yes, sir. That's correct. I think maybe they moved it. I don't know. Uh, Marriott now. Yeah. So, and and there that there would be seminars, you know, during the day, and then they'd be socializing in the evenings. Yes, sir. And it was a family event. Very much so. And Alec would bring Maggie and Paul and Buster every time. And you got to see him interact with his entire family. I did. And he was a family man, wasn't he? By all accounts, yes, sir. And you went to um, Maggie and Paul's funeral? Yes, sir, I did. And, um, and then after the funeral, you went out to Moselle? Yes, sir. Um, and what was Alex's demeanor? He, he, he was a broken man. You could, you could tell. He was very upset. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was very upset. And then, and then you saw him um, a few months later at, at, um, at that convention at, at Hilton Head? Yes, sir, I did. And, and you said he, he was with his brother, John Marvin? Yes, sir. And his son Buster was there, too. I, I believe that's correct, yes, sir. And John Marvin's not a lawyer, right? He's not. Is it unusual for John Marvin to come to the lawyer convention? I, I had not seen him before, no, at, at the convention, no. Right. He was there supporting his brother? I believe so, yes. And, um, and people were trying to lift Alex's spirits up and support him during that period of time? I think so, yes, sir. I like it, Mr. Nothing further from the state. Thank you, sir. With that, Michael Gunn concludes his testimony. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
after Michael Gunn steps down from the witness stand and Brian Hudak takes the seat, Prosecutor John Conrad begins to question the witness when Judge Clifton Newman suddenly interrupts and announces that an unrevealed issue has prompted courthouse security to evacuate the building. Once the security matter is resolved, Judge Newman calls the lunch break. After the lunch break, Brian Hudak again steps up to the witness stand. Mr. Hudak appears to be in his 40s. He is clean-shaven and sports short black hair. He wears a gray suit, a white dress shirt, and a purple patterned tie. Prosecutor John Conrad handles the questioning for the state. I think you're explaining your duties. Let's just start there again. What sure. are your duties at Sled, sir? Uh, in computer crimes, I'm responsible for examining digital evidence, be it cell phones, computers, uh, vehicle infotainment systems. I also respond to network intrusion incidents, and I'm uh, evidence custodian. Okay. Uh, and in the course of your duties uh, at SLED, did you have occasion to come into contact with a uh, 2021 uh, Chevrolet Suburban uh, that was driven by the defendant on the night of the murders? Uh, yes, I did. What was your role uh, with that vehicle? What did you do with that vehicle? I was contacted about potentially uh, removing the infotainment system for examination. However, it was unsupported by the tool I use. So I was asked to still remove said infotainment and OnStar systems uh, to be sent off uh, for further examination. I'm gonna show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 444. Do you recognize that document, sir? Uh, yes, that's a solid property receipt that I filled out uh, with the information for the infotainment module and the OnStar module. And is that the document you filled out when you removed that infotainment center? Yes, it is. And what else did you remove? Uh, infotainment module and an OnStar module. Okay. And you just testified that uh, SLED did not have any tools that gave you the ability to actually analyze those items. Is that correct? Correct. The software uh, I have access to, which as far as I know is basically the only software, uh, it was unsupported by that at the time. And do you know if uh, even today that software supports this particular vehicle? I don't believe it is. Conrad grabs two evidence bags and hands them to the witness. Okay. I'm going to show you what's been marked for ID only items 447 and 448. Let's see if you recognize those items. So. Yes, I do. It's the, uh, the infotainment module and the OnStar module. Okay. And those are, are those the items that you removed from that 2021 Suburban? Yes, they are. Okay. I'm going to ask you, is, let's start with the entertainment center. I believe there is a uh, serial number printed on that. Could you read that serial number on the, the infotainment center to uh, into the record, please? Uh, 432031217000296. Okay. Uh, and your exhibit 444, uh, which is your paperwork you filled out and removed it, did you write that serial number on that paperwork? Yes, I did. And you don't have to read it out loud again, but can you compare the serial number for the infotainment center on your property sheet with the serial number on that box and tell me if they match? They do. And then what's the other item, uh, 447, what is that? The uh, LG OnStar module. Okay, and does that have a serial number somewhere on it? It does, but I cannot read it in the bag. Uh, would you be able to do anything to help you read it? Is that, if we open it up, would it make it Yeah, easier? if I could remove it. All right, can you, do you have any yeah. knife on you? That you can I do. Have? Mr. Hudak takes a moment to open the evidence bag before retrieving the item inside. It looks like you're doing something else there. Uh, it appears to be a Federal Bureau of Investigation evidence tape that's actually right over the serial number, and the letters in federal are preventing me from reading it. So you, is it able? I don't. It does not appear okay. that it's coming up. All right, but did you? Uh, could you read? Did you read the? Excuse me, on your property receipt, could you read the serial number? 
on your property receipt for the yes. Star? Yes, it is a 009 Victor India Echo Yankee 519052. All right, thank you. Best of your knowledge, the unit you're holding, that exact unit you took out of that vehicle? Yes, and for the letters and numbers of the serial number, I can see what I can see does match up. All right, at this time, say we move to exhibit the property receipt 4440. Conrad hands Hudak another piece of paper. All right, and I'm going to show you what's been marked as Exhibit 445. And let me see if you just recognize that document. Yes, I do. And is that a document that you personally prepared? Uh, no, it's not. All right, but is that a, another property receipt? Yes, it is. And are those uh, records that Slate property receipts, are those records Slate keeps in normal course of business? Yes. Okay. Uh, and do you recognize the, the name and signature of who did prepare that, that receipt? Yes. Who is that? Uh, Lieutenant Britt Duff. Okay. And... What does that property receipt uh, represent? It appears to be representing that GM infotainment module and the LG OnStar module, uh, changing custody for the purpose of providing to the FBI for examination. Uh, and do you know how that those two things were sent to the FBI? I do not. All right. And uh, the serial number, the GM infotainment serial number. You don't have to read it again, but you, could you compare that to the serial number on the, on the infotainment center? They match. Okay. Uh, and then I know you couldn't read the full serial number on the OnStar, but the letters that you can see, can you compare those with the serial number on the second property receipt? For the ones I can see, they do match. And at this time, I'm going to move to introduce Exhibit 445 into evidence. No objection. Submitted without objection. All right. And at this time, I'm just going to move that items 447 and 448. Be marked for ID only at this point. You don't have to move for them to be marked for ID only. Yes, sir. We're just going to mark them for ID at, uh, only at this point. Nothing further for this witness here. Anything by the defense? No questions, Joe. Thank you, sir. Thank you. With the defense declining the opportunity to cross-examine the witness, Brian Hudak steps down from the witness stand. The state next calls Dwight Falkowski. Falkowski appears to be in his 40s. He wears a black suit, an aqua blue dress shirt, and a green and yellow patterned tie. John Conrad again handles the questioning for the prosecution. He begins by asking the witness about his professional responsibilities. All right, Mr. Falkowski, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing good. All right. Where are you employed, sir? I am employed with the FBI. Okay. And what is your job title there? I am an electronics engineer. Okay. Uh, and what unit of the FBI are you employed in? The Electronic Device Analysis Unit. Okay. And what does the Electronic Device Analysis Unit do at the FBI? We collect data off of cell phones and other mobile devices and, in my case, vehicle systems, uh, mobile devices in general, uh, that can't be collected by commercial tools. And so the FBI has a unit dedicated to extracting data off certain devices that is otherwise unavailable, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Uh, and you kind of mentioned it, but specifically, what is your role in the in this unit? I'm, do do? I serve a role as an automotive uh, forensic specialist. Okay. And what, is, what does that entail? What, what, what does that mean? So I take a look at automotive systems and extract uh, data off the memory components of those systems. And then from the uh, images we get from those memory components, I will take a look at there, find the data that we're interested in finding, and we will create parsing tools that will pull out that data and take it from a computer format to a human-readable format. Let's, let's explain that a little more. You said a parsing 
rule. What is that? We'll explain that to the jury what that is, please. Okay, so a parsing tool is, uh, in, in this case, um, a computer script that I'm writing that, or I have written, that will go in and look at the selected binary image, the flash memory image that I've created, and go in and either create a file system or just go with raw into the binary and search for data that is of interest to us. This is data we've researched and found, and it'll take that data out of the system and, again, put it into a human-readable format, text or graphics or coordinate points, so that we can understand it as humans. And in its most basic format, data is stored how? In binary. And what's binary mean? Binary is just zeros and ones, what the computer reads. Okay. Uh, and the parsing tool, if I understood you correctly, it helps you take that binary information and translate it into information that you can read and understand. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background. What, what uh, education and uh, training have you had? In this area, I have a bachelor's, bachelor's of science uh, degree in electrical engineering. Okay. And if you'll give me one moment, I have my CV here, and I'll tell, I'll list out uh, training I've taken with the FBI. Mr. Falkowski retrieves the document and refers to it as he describes the multiple levels of training that he has accumulated over the course of his career. After the witness finishes this description, John Conrad continues his direct examination. Okay, and what, uh, do you recall, if not specifically, but generally, what were you qualified as an expert witness when, in 2019? I don't recall the exact uh, name they gave me for the expert witness, but I serve as, uh, what I've told them, I serve as an electronics engineer, automotive, automotive forensic specialist. Okay, uh, and how would you best describe your expertise that you're going to talk about today? How would you personally describe it? I take a look at automotive systems mm -hmm. and I go in there and find the data of interest. Mm -hmm. So we'll go into the date types of data would be things like uh, connected devices, cell phones, thumb drives, um, cell phones that can also collect things like uh, uh, call records uh, and uh, contact lists. Also, navigation data, locations of the vehicle mm -hmm. or destinations that the user may have entered in the system. I go find that data in these systems and I write these parsing tools that I've mentioned yep. to go ahead and pull those out. That's to um, extent. So would automotive forensic specialist be descriptive of what you do? Yes. Okay. Um, Your Honor, at this time, the state would move, enter uh, Mr. Falkowski as an expert in the area of automotive forensic specialist. Judge Clifton Newman qualifies Mr. Falkowski as an expert witness. Prosecutor Conrad continues his direct examination by asking the witness about his methods. All right. Um, so let's let's talk a little more about uh, the mechanics of how you obtain this data and what you do. Uh, and just talking, not specifically in this case, but just kind of generally in your unit. Okay. What, what, what do you do? When you receive a device from a vehicle, first of all, what kind of devices do you receive from vehicles? Uh, they tend to be um, an infotainment center, which can be, uh, you know, uh, basically the brains of the system that puts on some of these modern cars. It puts up the screen. It shows you music. If it's got navigation, it'll show notification. It's the, it's the computer brain of that system. Okay. Also take a look at components such as the telematics box, mm -hmm. which you'll hear about, like the OnStar module in this case. And those will tend to have connected device services and sometimes location data as well. Okay. And just generally speaking, how do you access the information stored on these devices? First thing we do is what we call data extraction. And data extraction involves basically going in um, and finding the, data, uh, the flash memory components on, the, on the, this computer, um, the, the infotainment system or the telematics box, and we will 
we have different methods to extract that data. We, we have software methods. We have methods where we'll connect to the circuit board, or in, when sometimes we will just remove the chip and read it with a reader. Let me stop you real quick. This, this uh, jury has heard testimony about cell phone extractions and how cell phones are extracted. Uh, and you mentioned sometimes you can use a software method. How is that analogous to how uh, cell phone data is normally obtained in extraction? If I can compare it to a commercial tool like Celebrite, a software solution would be something you could plug into the system while it's operating in order to get into the system and extract the data you need. But some of these automotive devices are, are far more unique than an average cell phone, correct? Yes. Therefore, is there an off-the-shelf ready system that can access most vehicles? No. Uh, uh, there is one commercial company called Burla mm -hmm. that, that uh, does have a tool that can, is used in the field. However, we only accept the devices at EDAU for systems that there is no support for. Okay. So you mentioned this company, Burla, which does produce a, uh, a, a commercially available uh, software that can extract data from some vehicles, correct? Some vehicles, yes. But it does not support the 2021 Chevrolet Suburban, correct? That's correct. All right. And that's how the device ended up with you, correct? That's correct. All right. So I, I kind of stopped you there. Uh, and if a software solution isn't available, uh, like Burla, uh, what are some of the other methods that you use to pull data off of uh, some of these automotive systems? I mentioned such as uh, attaching uh, wires to a circuit board and extracting data from the memory component or also removing the chip from the board and putting it in a reader and reading the chip, the flash memory chip directly. And uh, let's talk more about what you did in this case. Uh, when you attempted to access the data uh, for the 2021 Suburban, uh, did you encounter any problems? Yes, uh, we uh, ran into our first in instance of data being encrypted on a vehicle. Okay, uh, and that's not something you'd run into before? Not on vehicles. Okay, uh, and briefly explain to the jury what you mean by encrypted, please. So when a system encrypts the data, it takes basically a code word such as a, it's called a key and uh, scrambles the data using that key so that it can't be written unless you have that key and the key will, if, to read it back, you require the key to unlock the data and see it back in its regular form. And you discovered this data on a Chevy a Suburban was encrypted, correct? That's correct. John Conrad next hands Mr. Falkowski two small evidence bags. All right, I'm gonna show you, they've been marked for ID only, 448 and 447. And I'm gonna take, uh, take a look at them, see if you recommend balance, please. This is the OnStar module that I processed, and this is the infotainment system that I processed for the how suburban. Do you, how do you know those are the units you process? Uh, we have an FBI uh, identifier tag on here, and my personal uh, identifier symbols are on here. And that's on both of those devices? On both units. All right, so let's talk about, you say when you initially tried to access the data on these, they were encrypted. Uh, can you uh, tell us what the FBI did or what you did to ultimately allow you to be able to access the information? Uh, involved our, our greater team to develop a tool that would be able to reach into a live system on one of these vehicles and extract the encryption keys and, and remove the, uh, get the encryption keys so we, then we could encrypt, decrypt the data that we had collected. Okay. And was that process ultimately successful? Yes, it was. And how long did that take? We, approximately one year. All right. And when you access this information and you finally had it decrypted, what types of information did you find? Uh, let's start on the uh, infotainment center. What types of information did you find on there? So the infotainment center uh, contained uh, connected devices, phones that have been linked by Bluetooth or USB, okay. um, and uh, 
associated with some of those devices were call logs and contact lists, and there was also uh, a little bit of location data. Um, so you found some call logs, correct? That's correct. And how would that infotainment center uh, get call logs? What, explain that process. Why would they be on that center? So a lot of cars that have Bluetooth connectivity will, when you connect the Bluetooth with them, sometimes they will ask you if you want to uh, let the car connect to it or access your data on your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it doesn't ask. But in most cases, it'll ask you, and then at that point, it'll take things like call logs and pull them from the phone into the computer, the, the infotainment system. All right, and you found some call logs on this infotainment center, right? Correct. Yes. You found some location data, correct? That's correct. Did you do you recall if you found any from the date of June seventh, twenty twenty-one? Yes, there was data from that date. Uh, location data? Oh, location data. No. Okay. There's not call call data. All right, you found some call data. You found some. Uh, Bluetooth data, and what kind of Bluetooth data did you find for devices did you find? It, uh, primarily the Bluetooth address of the connecting device. Uh, did it provide any information of when a device may have been connected to the infotainment center? No, there was no timestamps with that data. Okay. All right. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Alex Murdaugh. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of FBI electronics engineer Dwight Falkowski. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.